0: Hey guys, welcome to episode 100 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So, for today's episode, we're really excited. First, because it's our 100th episode. Isn't that crazy?
1: It actually is crazy. I mean, I never would have thought we would be right here, right now, at 100. This is the 100th episode.
0: Well, I mean, technically... Sorry, I might ruin this a little bit. We did, like, 100 episodes already, because we have 45 episodes out on Patreon. That's true. But... This is our 100th episode with everybody, so it's super exciting. Exactly. And secondly, we are also excited because we want to wish an amazing listener a happy birthday. Sarah, happy birthday. We know that it just passed. It was on April 6th, so we hope that you had an amazing day and that you kept the party going all week even till today when, you know, we released an episode close to your birthday so we could say happy birthday to you.
1: Yes, happy birthday.
0: Francis reached out to us and asked us if he could use his shout out for your birthday. How adorable is that? That's really nice. Definitely a keeper. (laughs) For sure. So we are so happy that you both are loving the podcast and each other and to many, many more happy birthdays. Yes. We also just want to say a quick hi to John's Aunt Donna.
1: Yes. (laughs) Hi, Donna. (laughs) She's
0: been listening to this show. We love you, Ann Donna, and we're so happy that you're liking it. I just had to do that. No, totally. (laughs) And before we get into the episode, um, I just want to remind you again that we're going to thank all of our new patrons on Patreon at the end of this episode. And if you want to join our Patreon page, you could do so at patreon.com slash true crime couple. If you donate one to two dollars, you get one extra episode a month. And if you donate $5 or above, that's two extra episodes a month. And at $10, you get a third episode, which is our kind of like true crime news off the cuff episode, which is always really fun. Plus, you get a sticker at $5 and up. So we just wanted to remind you that those are the different tiers for our Patreon. And we introduced something new recently. So if you donate $10 or above, you can join our True Crime Couple Discord channel, where um we will be available to talk once a week about the episodes that we release. So that's it's really fun, something we're uh, looking forward to doing.
1: Yeah, um we also, you know, it's just like a really nice place for you to like, you know, you could um have discussions, kind of we could build a little bit more of a community there and um just give everybody a chance to talk too that way, you know. If you liked an episode and you wanted to talk to somebody else about it because, you know, sometimes not everybody likes true crime, so it's hard to get you know people to be like, "Hey, did you listen to that murder that just took place?" You know, now you could do it.
0: <laughs> exactly. So for our one hundredth episode, I wanted to pick something special. So today I have for you all two cases in one. When a cold case from 1980 gets solved, it reveals that the killer had committed more than one crime.
1: Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the
0: killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. On the night of September 9th, 1980, Kathleen O'Brien Doyle had her close friend Vivian Mahoney over for a glass of wine. 25-year-old Kathleen was married, but she was temporarily living on her own while her husband, a pilot for the United States Navy, was on deployment on the USS Eisenhower, which was an aircraft carrier that was located at that time in the Indian Ocean. The nights could get lonely, so Vivian chose to join her friend at 9432 Granby Street in Norfolk, Virginia at around 7.30 p.m. Kathleen was no stranger to deployments, however, because her father had also been in the U.S. Navy, so she was used to her father's being out on deployment, so it was common for her for someone that she loved to be away. I mean, it doesn't make it easier, but...
1: I mean, I guess she just understands the struggle of having a relationship like that. It's hard. It's, I'm sure it's taxing.
0: Right. So the house was adorable, with its round-top door, brick face, and bay window a perfect little starter home for a happy young couple. They even lived next to a Methodist church, which they attended, something that, you know, always makes people feel a little bit safer, especially because the road was quite busy. Kathleen and Vivian drank and hung out until she left at around 9 to 9.30 p.m. The following day, Vivian called the Doyle household to speak to Kathleen, but she never answered. She tried to call two other times throughout the day, but she had not gotten a response. She decided that her friend must be out running errands, or maybe she was outside and didn't hear the phone ringing. She tried to call back at night when she was sure her friend would be there, but she again got no answer. The next day, Vivian called the Doyle residence with her husband James by her side. As before, there had been no response. The couple was concerned about Kathleen and, you know, they had told her husband, Stephen, Stephen Doyle, the one who was deployed, that while he was away, that they would look out for her. So the couple felt obligated to go check on her. So they set out to see if Kathleen was okay just before noon. When the couple got to the house, Vivian got out of the passenger side and walked to the front door she observed that the outside light was still on and there was mail in the mailbox and there were two newspapers lying in the yard. It seemed as if no one had left the house in two days and she knew that, you know, her friend turned the porch light on every night, but then when she went to go get the newspaper, she turned the light off. She, she knew her friend's routine, so it was strange. And then when she went to knock on the door, she found that the screen door was left unlocked. Again, something that Kathleen wouldn't have done. So on the door, there were three small rectangular windows that kind of like rise in ascending order. And she peered inside the window that she could look through to kind of look inside the house. She saw two wine glasses on the table. And they were in the same spot where she and Kathleen had left them days before. Again, evidence that no one had touched anything for two days. So this caused Vivian concern. Um, She wanted to know what had happened to her friend. So she knocked on the door. And when she did, the force of her knock opened the door.
1: Okay. So this is is really kind of building towards something being really wrong with the way the house is. I mean, nothing's been touched. Wine glasses are still there. Things are just completely out of routine. That's uh, Those are some red flags.
0: Right, and how straight out of a movie is that when you knock on the door and it opens it's Oh my
1: God, it really is, right?
0: <laughs> when Vivian walked through the living room and kitchen, she noticed that everything was as it had been the night that she was over. She knew something was wrong, so she moved faster through the house. When she got to the bedroom, she saw Kathleen on the floor. Terrified, she ran from the house, screaming to her husband that Kathleen was on the bedroom floor and she thought she was dead. James hurried into the house to see if what his wife said was true. When he got to the bedroom, he noticed that everything seemed to be a mess, as if there had been a struggle. Even the mattress had been knocked halfway off of its frame. James Mahoney saw Kathleen on the floor as well. She was bound by various cords all around her body. There was dry blood in spots around her. He leaned over and felt her wrist. He couldn't find a pulse. When he left the bedroom, he found his wife in the living room of the home. He told her to call 911. She attempted to dial the police, but she said the phone wasn't working confused james tried to dial as well and she was right it wasn't working so because of this he ran to a neighbor's house to call the police so what had happened was the phone they could hear the operator but the operator couldn't hear them so it was very strange
1: so you think it was a problem coming from the actual home Or did you think it was maybe something to have to do with the actual service being provided?
0: Uh, It seemed like there was something wrong with the phone itself because they were getting through. Okay.
1: They just couldn't hear from the house. Correct. Okay.
0: So when the Norfolk police and fire departments arrived on the scene, they were relieved to hear that after the discovery of the body that Vivian and James Mahoney had not entered the bedroom again. So that is going to help with the integrity of the crime scene. The only kind of manipulation of the scene was when James went to feel if Kathleen was still alive. So at least they can account for, you know, those fingerprints.
1: Right. Because there's only going to be like two two people. Right. It's only going to be the person that did it, possibly. And the James, the husband. So uh, the husband of the uh, friend.
0: Right. And then also, I'm sure that Stephen Doyle's prints are going to be there because it's his house, too. Well, yeah, true. So Vivian told police everything that she knew and James described what it was he saw when he went to check on Kathleen after his wife came running out of the house. And in truth, the discovery of Kathleen's body must have been very difficult for the Mahoney's based on the notes of the paramedics and the reports of the forensic investigator. The paramedic reported that Kathleen had been naked when she was found. Her hands had been bound by wire, she had been gagged, and an electrical cord was wrapped around her neck. Imagine finding your friend that way.
1: I mean it's extremely brutal and it's it's I think it shocks you more when you see somebody that's tied up and that's you know, that's that's not clothed. There's you know? blood surrounding yeah. your body. I mean, and also you have to think about that bedroom. Everything is in disarray. The bed's even off of the frame, so you can kind of get that feeling that this was something very violent.
0: Right, and it's it's probably something that the couple were never able to get out of their mind.
1: I mean, how could you?
0: I know. And then now not to mention that Steven is going to have to be told about this. He's not even home, so that I'm sure is going to lead to some overwhelming guilt of not being home, not saying it's not his fault whatsoever, but he like anyone else, would feel guilty that he wasn't home during this.
1: I mean, 100%.
0: So the medical examiner stated that her time of death would have had to have been days prior based on the rigor of her body. Her cause of death was a large stab wound to the left side of her chest. Dried white matter had been found near her genitals. I mean, that's how... It, of course, had been described by the paramedics because they hadn't done any testing yet. Um, These are just the reports from the scene. So they're saying, like, potentially it's semen. Later on, it is determined to have been semen found at the scene. But again, we're in 1980, so DNA is very much in its infancy. So they most likely are going to have better luck with fingerprinting the scene, really.
1: It's crazy to think of a world without like true DNA testing. You know. Right.
0: And that's why, you know, so, so many of these horrific crimes that we talk about, you know, the ones that live in infamy, they I feel like they do so because that was a world before DNA.
1: Uh, yeah. I always think like t- the time period of like you know, the 70s and the 80s was always like there was always crime. Always crime, nothing, you know, everything being unsolved. It's kind of interesting. But I guess it's just with the change of technology that it kind of made crimes like this not happen all the time.
0: That's also when the whole term serial killer had been coined. Right. So I feel like then when the public had first heard about what a serial killer is and the psychopathy of it all, people got obsessed
1: yeah i mean and, and also i mean it could be bad or good right i mean mm-hmm. you're just upset like we're obsessed in a good way like it's yes it's uh interesting
0: yes other people would be like no that's weird but <laughs> like, you guys are think crazy it's good. <laughs> <laughs> you're all our people so you understand exactly our feelings but there's another realization with this whole case and this is something that must have really terrified vivian as well i mean on top of feeling devastated that her friend had been murdered but This meant, based on the crime scene, that Kathleen was attacked just after she left. Potentially, she could have been murdered too.
1: Yeah, and you know, to make it even worse than that, is it possible that maybe that they were this person was waiting for the right time to come into the residence after she left,
0: like for her to leave? Right. It's it has to be like spine chilling. To hear those details. Yeah. So the following day, a full autopsy was performed. It appeared that James Mahoney had been right when he guessed that there had been a struggle. There was evidence that Kathleen had been raped. Semen was found within the vaginal canal and cervix. Blunt force, most likely from a fist caused damage to the victim's face and mouth. She had also been kicked in the stomach several times. She'd been tied up, gagged, and strangled with an electrical cord. In addition to the stab wound in her left chest, there was an additional stab wound in her back. The wound in her chest went down far enough to have hit her rib, so it was the the stabbing motion was da- a downward stabbing motion. So it seems that Kathleen Doyle had died a horrific death. The only pieces of evidence that had been collected from within the bedroom were the items that had blood on them. So her body was actually found on like a bedspread and that had blood all over it. So the blood hadn't really seeped too much onto the floor because it was absorbed by the bedspread. So that was collected and kind of brought in for evidence along with her clothing but other than that, there was no other pieces of evidence collected from the house. An examination of the house found that there had been no forced entry. However, nine of the windows were left unlocked. A piece of wood was also found lying next to the house. This wood could have been used to gain entry through a spare bedroom window. That was something that was noted by an officer Because he felt like it was positioned in a certain way where someone could have used it to enter the spare bedroom. Like, to kind of boost themselves up.
1: Okay, I mean, that makes sense. I just, you know, to have nine windows in your home unlocked, that would scare me.
0: Well, it's also 1980, right? It's true. So, I mean, I feel like that is part of the time period where people just felt safe in their homes.
1: I mean, it's kind of sad, though, right? Because it's like everyone felt so comfortable. But now look at people now. I mean, I know what we do. (laughs) We go around to every single window to check. Yeah. So it's just like, I guess it's just the world we live in now, you know?
0: I know. And then when I like wake up in the morning and I find one window is left unlocked, I have like reverse panic. And I'm like, oh my God, we could have died last night.
1: And then I just look at her and I'm like, (laughs) come on, stop. (laughs)
0: So it was also discovered that the reason Vivian and James couldn't use the phone was because the internal mouthpiece of the telephone had been removed. So that was what was preventing the caller from communicating during phone conversations, which was why they thought the phone wasn't working. So someone had removed the mouthpiece from the telephone and that mouthpiece wasn't found at the crime scene. It's very bizarre. Okay,
1: that that is a little suspicious
0: well thanks john
1: <laughs> i know i'm being captain obvious but <laughs> what i I'm, I'm just you got to think though there's so much to that because that means someone had a plan to remove this piece so that just in case she did get to a phone she couldn't do anything
0: i think it's a really bizarre thing to do because not only is it calculated like you said, but it takes a lot of time to do that where it really would have been easier to kind of just pull the line out of the wall.
1: Yeah, but then if you pull the line out of the wall, then you know that someone has tampered with it.
0: And I guess you could just plug it back in pretty easily. Right. This yeah. way you wouldn't be able to if do you're, anything. If
1: you're removing internal hardware, you no one's gonna know it's not you know, you the average person is mm-hmm. not gonna know that the hardware is gone. But it's, it's like we're setting up for something bigger here because you have the fact that this person must have waited for the other friend to leave, and now this thing with the phone, which then is kind of making me think that this person gained access to the home while she wasn't there, ahead of ahead of this.
0: Oh, you think they were waiting in the yeah. house? Ooh, either,
1: well, either that or gained entry in through one of the nine windows and then did what he did or did what... This person did with the phone and then left like out that same window to just come back and do it again.
0: Oh, so you think they gained entry twice, possibly?
1: I mean, think about it. If you have nine windows open, you're not going to lock them.
0: I was thinking more along the lines of the crime was committed. He had raped and murdered Kathleen Doyle. And then just to be safe, if she wasn't dead, he removed that. Because you have to think, removing a mouthpiece from a phone is going to take a long time. So he would have to feel comfortable enough to be able to do that.
1: I don't know. You know why? Why? This person went to the extreme of tying her up. I mean, and stabbing her. I mean, he knows she's going to die if you stab somebody two times in in, in a bad in bad ways, and you're beating. You know, he this person obviously beat up on them, right? I don't think you think that they can make their way to a phone. So That's I, true. I don't think, not to say that you're wrong. I could be wrong, but I just think that, that this had to be done, you know, before the attack.
0: Right. Well, investigators also couldn't find the murder weapon at the scene. Within the bedroom, a marble rolling pin had been found. So this item was obviously out of place. The entire house was also dusted for prints all but one latent print could be accounted for the other prints belonged to the victim the victim's husband and vivian mahoney the detectives were not hopeful about the latent fingerprints because it was found on an envelope that was in a location where the struggle didn't occur so the latent fingerprint they don't think belonged to the person who committed this crime There was also no other fingerprints found on the telephone, which obviously the killer had to have manipulated. So they felt like most likely he was wearing gloves when the crime was committed. Makes sense. So they weren't hopeful about the whole fingerprint thing. Um, The marble rolling pin is a little interesting. And that makes me feel. Just roll with me here. If I hear a weird noise in the house and I'm alone, I literally take whatever I have in my hand or can find in the kitchen and bring it with me to then go search for that sound.
1: She's not kidding.
0: Could <laughs> could Kathleen have been in the kitchen, she just heard something and then grabbed the first heaviest thing she could find to then go check on what that sound was and it was someone breaking into her house and she then confronted the man or woman but
1: that's a hard thing but it is well no i'm
0: sorry it can't be a woman there's even i think you did that once before. i I did that too. it was my turn i know
1: (laughs) i don't think anybody ever called it out and i appreciate it because it's sometimes no
0: we corrected it so
1: hey listen i know sometimes i i I could be okay and then other times i could be completely idiotic it's okay i roll with it that's why we love you yeah um i mean i guess that's true like i mean if you were in the kitchen you're gonna grab the first thing that you could use to protect yourself that's possible
0: So yeah, that's just another scenario of we really don't know. And to be really honest, uh, moving forward with this case is that there are still so many unanswered questions about this crime and the way that it took place. So Stephen Doyle was informed of his wife's murder while serving on the USS Eisenhower. He was granted leave to be with his and Kathleen's family and plan the funeral. The impact Kathleen had on the lives around her must have been overwhelming, as seen through the obvious devastation felt at her loss. For the next few months, the Norfolk Police Department investigated all known contacts of Kathleen and her husband. Once Stephen returned home, the NCIS, the Naval Criminal and Investigative Services, yes, the same as the show, offered their services to aid the Norfolk Police Department in those investigations and inquiries. And, you know, this makes sense because the couple lived just off of base, so their cooperation made everything just go smoother when it came to the approvals of speaking to an investigating U.S. Naval officers because most of their friends and contacts were people who were in the U.S. Navy or married to or associated with people in the Navy.
1: Not to mention, it's just more resources. Yes. I mean, you got to look at it that way. Just, to, you know, like, I, you know, I'd be happy to take it, you know. Now you have, you know, your normal, you know, town police or city police. Plus, this is on top of it. I mean, it's a it's a, it's a win-win.
0: Yeah, because they obviously have a massive budget. <laughs> yeah. So despite their efforts, no leads were deemed sufficient enough to continue investigations. Phone records were obtained by the investigators for the month leading up to and the night of the murder. It was confirmed by Stephen Doyle that no unusual calls were placed or received by his wife. So he looked through the call log and he obviously noticed every phone number that was received and dialed and the timings were not strange. Because he said his lo- his wife loved talking on the phone. So it was clear, you know, like she was calling her mom or she was calling her friend.
1: Okay. So nothing out of the ordinary.
0: No. On the night of the murder, Kathleen tried to make a long distance phone call to a friend who lived out of state at 9.32 p.m., which kind of like coincides with what Vivian said. So her story is completely corroborated when she said she left around 9 to nine thirty. So Vivian left Kathleen's house and she's going to pick up the phone and try to call a friend. So that phone call was placed at 9 32 PM, but it went unanswered. Then Kathleen's mother tried to call her house at 11 PM, but that phone call went unanswered. So, I mean, 11 PM is really late, but I mean, I guess hey, to each his own.
1: Hey, maybe she was just one of those people who stay up late.
0: And want to say goodnight. Yeah. So that means that the crime must have taken place after 9.32 p.m. I mean, we know that... I mean, she could have not answered the phone for several reasons. She was sleeping and maybe it happened later. Or we don't know really why that phone call went unanswered at 11 p.m. Because it could have been for several reasons. But we know that the last known thing that Kathleen did was try to place a phone call at 932. And that concluded all that the detectives had who were working on the case. I mean, that's, it's really not a lot because, I mean, it would be everything if we had DNA testing and they could test the semen, but they don't have that yet. So the only viable piece of evidence that was collected was this semen sample but they were years away from being able to utilize that kind of evidence to find her killer and over the next 4 years the trail went cold and that's because there weren't even any leads to dry up you know it's there's there just wasn't anything whenever a person who committed a similar offense was caught they would question them about Kathleen's case but they never found any suspect who was who they could place in Norfolk, Virginia, during the time of the murders. Um, The detectives would also question any family member or acquaintance of the Doyle or O'Brien family that committed any crime. So, like, someone could have been, like, arrested for robbery and they would question them on the murder. Like, they were just really kind of reaching, but it is refreshing to see this constant vigilance when it comes to the investigation of crimes.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know what I was also thinking, too, when we're talking about the, um, the hardware in the phone. Sorry to go back to that. It just kind of popped in my head and I wanted to just say it before I forget. If it wasn't, because we said that we could, they couldn't find where it was.
0: Right. They took it with them, most likely. So,
1: could it be those type of killers that keep things as a keepsake or memento?
0: It could be. It could have been taken for a reason and kept. Yeah. So just about four years after the crime was committed, something sickening happened in the world of criminal investigations. Henry Lee Lucas and his partner in crime, Otis Toole, were arrested. The two men were confessing to many heinous crimes that occurred throughout the country from when they first met in 1976 until their eventual capture in 1983. So if you are a fan of the true crime world, uh, you definitely know about Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole. So this is nothing super new to you. But um, for those of you that don't know, these are two of the most prolific serial killers that have existed in the United States. Um, Yes, they kind of exaggerated many of the crimes that took place but otis tool was responsible for the murder of john walsh's son the man who went on to do america's most wanted in a horrific crime so for those of you who don't know who they are that's just
1: it's a pretty quick yeah. little yeah background. it's a large profile a large profile
0: yeah and i'm gonna get into it a little bit okay so lucas would confess to hundreds of murders as would tool However, together they claim to have committed 108 acts of violence against men, women, and children. And how were they able to get away with this all? Well, they were disorganized, vagabond killers that crisscrossed the country. So they didn't have a victimology. They killed whoever they could. Um, their crimes were usually rape and murder which is why it kind of piqued the interest of those investigators who were still working on the Kathleen Doyle case they had there was no planning whatsoever the way that they murdered people changed and they didn't have any address so they were moving around the country you can't find a serial killer when you states aren't talking to um, different law enforcement agencies aren't discussing what's taking place. I mean, the FBI is eventually going to be the agency that comes in and tries to get this like national database, CODIS. But that's not something that was happening when Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole were committing their crimes. So that's how they were able to do so. And that's a lot of successful serial killers. I mean, I don't want to say successful, but successful in what they wanted to do um, the ones who move around a lot, like the Green River Killers, another example. The reason why they were able to commit so many murders was because different jurisdictions were not speaking to each other, and this, of course, is going to be the case uh, with Lucas and Tool because they're crisscrossing across the country.
1: Yeah, that's that's insane, and it's actually really intriguing. I, I think that it's it's always crazy when people don't have like an MO. Um, and like kind of are able to go from one area to another, maybe not even knowing the area and still being able to right. commit a crime or or murder and then being able to like blend back in. It's really, it's crazy.
0: Yeah. And that's, they are disorganized in their, um, like how we categorize them in the ser- in serial killer, you know, terminology. But then also organized killers can also be extremely dangerous where, you know, Ted Bundy was more of an organized killer. Yeah. But the things that Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole did and the ways that they explained them, you know, with with such callousness, it horrified America. Um, I think that everyone especially kind of like it hit home with the American public because when John Walsh and his wife really talked about their missing son, Adam, it was something that horrified america and it, it was every parent's worst fear john walsh's wife it took adam to the mall she wasn't paying attention he was off at an arcade while she was shopping when she went go went back to go get him he was gone i mean that was something that every mother in america was doing during that time period so for that to happen it was like wow this is yeah. hitting home and when Otis Toole described what he did to young Adam Walsh, it was sickening. So I, I think that when Lucas and Toole are now confessing to all of these crimes, everyone was just devastated that the, their worst fears had come true when it came to their missing loved ones. So as these two men were confessing to all of these crimes, police departments from around the country were sending detectives to talk to the men about cases that they had that were that could possibly be connected to them cuz everyone wants to solve a cold case right so the norfolk police wanted in on this questioning and to be sure that they were going to be able to speak to henry lee lucas or otis tool they requested and received warrants of arrest charging Lucas and Toole with the rape and murder of Kathleen Doyle in November of 1984. Kathleen's murder was one that they did confess to. So they did say that they committed the rape and murder of Kathleen Doyle. However, as the Norfolk police were trying to get the ball rolling on the case against Lucas and Tool, many investigators were beginning to question the confessions that the two men had had they raped tortured and killed over 100 victims collectively yes they did do that those 108 crimes that they are branded with did take place however lucas and tool confessed to four times that amount and some of the confessions ranged from not being physically possible meaning they weren't in that location at the time or one crime was committed in, say, the East Coast, and then they were in the Midwest the next day. So they might have done one of those crimes, but not both. And some were just absolutely ludicrous confessions. Like, for example, Lucas confessed to being the one who supplied Jim Jones with the poison to kill his cult followers. And, uh, and he confessed to the killing of Jimmy Hoffa.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, like, I see what you're on. saying. Like, the credibility of these two,
0: yeah.
1: um, you're not really too sure now because you know that they're capable. Of, you know what they're capable of, but are right. they confessing to just everything to make their count extremely high for, like, the pride of it or what? Like, yeah. it's it's a little peculiar.
0: Yeah, they want some, you know, they want notoriety. They want to immortalize themselves as the worst serial killers that... The United States has ever seen. Right. The worst of the worst. And that was something that especially Henry Lee Lucas was obsessed with. And he ended up gaining the nickname the confession killer because he a little bit more than Otis Toole over confessed. You have to think, too, this man knows that he's arrested. So every time he gets pulled out of jail and he gets to talk to investigators, that's a privilege in his eyes. Or he's going to lead them out to where a body is. Then he gets out of prison. So, I mean, he kind of kept this going for a really long time. But the reason he was able to do that was because he did have 108 murders under his belt. So they knew he was prolific. So right. which one of this is going to be the truth? And Henry Lee Lucas, although not the sharpest tool in the shed, um, he was intelligent about sprinkling in truth amongst the lies. So he might have lied about five murders, but then he confessed it to something he actually did. So it kept investigators on their toes.
1: Yeah, It's like you have all these different detectives from all over the place, kind of like just sitting there. Spinning and, their wheels. Yeah, trying to figure out what's real, what's not.
0: Right. And, and I think that was a little bit of a power trip for him, too, because now here you are with all of these powerful, intelligent men kind of running around in circles. And you're the one you're you're the puppet master.
1: Yeah. Plus, I think they also the two of them also enjoyed feeling like they were vital to like the investigation, because obviously they're confessing they can give clues to so they can close some of these cases.
0: Yes. And and they like talking about the crimes. That's something we also discussed with Israel Keyes, um, who is another serial killer who got kind of got off in describing uh, his rape and murders again to investigators kind of like re-victimizing in a way and that was something Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole definitely did as well as disgusting as that is. So there were a lot of problems with the confession of Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole in the murder of Kathleen Doyle and I think it was really intelligent for investigators to kind of be like okay let's take a step back and let's look at you know what was happening so and this is you know just a side note I can only imagine what it's like to be a detective working endless hours on a case only to not be able to give any answers to a grieving family that must be gut-wrenching and that's the reality of detectives who work a case that becomes cold, or are trying to reopen a cold case. So when something comes along that makes sense, like confessions of a known serial killer, it has to be really tempting to just say they did it. However, if everyone caved in to false confessions, especially the ones of Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole, then there would be a lot of families out there with the wrong answers. Investigations being closed but the real killers never being caught and left going out to offend that would be a horrifying domino effect and that's something that is really detrimental to a lot of investigations like although it's easy to just say solved check mark that looks better for your police department That's not good in the long run because now you have people getting away with crimes. You have people that might be in jail for something they didn't do.
1: Yeah. And you're not serving your community properly. No.
0: So that's why in April of 1986, the attorney general of the state of Texas put out something called the Lucas Report. And I'm sure that made him feel really special, too. Uh, He put this out to all law enforcement agencies that suspected Lucas or tool of committing one of their crimes in their jurisdiction. So writing this report was a laborious and tedious task for Texas law enforcement. And I commend them on completing it because it really has helped law enforcement agencies determine whether or not Lucas or tool could be viable suspects in the cold cases they were looking into. In this report, it stated all the known facts about Lucas and Toole, like where they were located, what days, months, years they were there for, just basically all the confirmed facts that they had that were corroborated with witnesses and fact-checked a third time when possible. They also included rapes and murders that they could, with 100% certainty, be tied to these men. So, like, for example, if we knew they committed this crime in Massachusetts on this day, then any other crimes that took place in the United States, it wasn't them.
1: Right, okay. So, this is a very detailed graph or, or, or a ledger, I don't oh, know, yeah. you know, of, of their whereabouts and facts. I mean, that's pretty good.
0: So, according to the confession that Henry Lee Lucas gave about the rape and murder of Kathleen Doyle, he stated that he... Otis Toole and Toole's niece and nephew had been in Virginia together at the time the murder occurred, so they were all in Norfolk, but he said that the niece and nephew were obviously not present at this murder. According to the Lucas report, however, Toole's niece and nephew had been present at their school in Florida on September 9th, 10th, and 11th. When the crime was committed on September, the crime was committed on September 10th. So if they reported to school the next day on September 11th in Florida, there is no way that they could have been in Virginia. Okay. And the reason why like the niece and nephew, like their account in school was uh, made known was because they traveled um, several times with Lucas and Toole. Which is another terrifying thing. I mean, Absolutely. <laughs> an episode on them would be ugh, it'd be like a four-parter. It's ins- it's insanity. <laughs> so we also know that Lucas, on September tenth, nineteen eighty, the day the crime was committed, had sold ninety-seven pounds of scrap metal to a man in Jacksonville, Florida. So they were in Florida during the murder. So that was not them. So both the warrants for both men were dropped. And again, Kathleen was not given any justice, and neither was her family. You know, they didn't have the answers they wanted. But in the long run, I think that this is something that they were probably happy with because you don't want to think something happened that didn't happen. That's true. But Kathleen's family, led by her father, John O'Brien, would not give up the quest for finding answers about what had happened to his daughter. Eventually, his persistence paid off, and Kathleen's case was reopened in 1995. Because of the advancements in DNA technology, the investigators that were involved in the case now worked hard to locate all family members, acquaintances, and former suspects, including Lucas and Toole. They asked for DNA samples from all of them, and they compared it to the semen sample from the crime scene, Because now they have the technology to do so, even though it was still a little new. No one was a match.
1: Okay, so now we know it wasn't those two.
0: Yeah. And I know that I just said that all in like two sentences, but in reality, that whole process of finding people, getting DNA samples, that took six years to complete.
1: Right, because it was so new.
0: And you have to think that took a lot of resources. Well, also like tracking down people, where are they now? A lot of the people that were suspects, acquaintances, friends, they were located in Norfolk, Virginia, because they were stationed there for the U.S. Navy. But then, of course, once you know their service was up, they spread out throughout the country.
1: And I'm also sure, like I mean, you also have to take into account maybe they weren't voluntarily, or they didn't want to voluntarily give their DNA away either
0: no especially not back then um so a lot of court orders had to have been made because people didn't even know what dna was so it's kind of like weird to them
1: right exactly meanwhile here we are swabbing and sending our samples to ancestry.com now yeah please keep keep doing that
0: we're finding lots of serial killers (laughs) (laughs) so following that part of the investigation Detectives went back and reviewed all physical evidence of the case because, really, right now, all they had was the additional physical evidence. There was still no other leads. So, during this look back into the evidence, the detectives realized that the bedspread that her body had been found on was not checked for DNA evidence, of course, because I mean, it was obvious that there had been a semen sample left on her body, but it was difficult to see if there was a semen sample on this bedspread because it was so saturated with blood, it was difficult to to see. So there was semen found on the blanket and this semen on the blanket matched the sample that was found on Kathleen. So because no matches had been found for DNA, the Norfolk police entered the unknown profile system into the CODIS database. And so did the NCIS because they were hoping they could also receive a hit from it because um, they were beginning to take DNA samples when people would commit crimes, like even like crimes within just the naval base. Okay. In early 2018, the Norfolk Police Department and NCIS – reached out to a company that was doing something new. This company called Paraben Nano Labs, according to their website, um, was helping in creating breakthrough products using DNA. So founded in 2005, they really had an initial focus on developing oncology therapeutics using DNA nanostructures. Other therapeutic applications soon followed, such as the development of synthetic vaccines using similar DNA technology. So they're doing a lot of medical work. But in recent years, the company has applied the bioinformatic infrastructure it developed for drug development into forensic DNA analysis. So they're they're basically like, okay, we found out how to determine how DNA GN- Genetics affect someone being sick, right? Right. So now they want to use how um, genetics can be pulled from a DNA structure. And they're using that to help with cold cases. It is very complicated. You know, it's a whole science stuff. You know, it's difficult to explain. But from what I've gathered they're pretty cutting edge in the forensic dna analysis world and they're using their technologies to determine genetic predispositions to specific diseases so they're also using the same technology to determine what someone's genetics would be based on their dna right so in 2018 when the investigators reached out to the team they had begun a program called Snapshot Investigative Genetic Genealogy. Since its inception, the investigative genetic genealogy has helped investigators identify suspects in cold cases and victims' identities in Jane and John Doe cases. This is done through the analysis of specific genetic markers present in DNA that determine people we're related to through similarities and specific markers. So this is found through like use of public genetic genealogy databases, which in 2018 had 1 million individuals. Where are these public genetic genealogy databases coming from? What you just talked about.
1: Right. You have like Ancestry, 23 uh, me.
0: Yep. All of that. Yeah. So in 2018, there was 1 million to pull from.
1: I mean, that's a lot. Imagine I mean, now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. It's probably way more than that.
0: Yes. So Paraben agreed to test the sample with their snapshot forensic DNA phonotyping system, which would predict first genetic ancestry, eye color, hair color, skin color, face shape ethnic background we saw that also with um the bike path rapist as well remember they did to determine the um genetic backgrounds.
1: exactly yeah
0: so they also wanted to test the sample using their new paraben snapshot genetic genealogy report Try to say that like 10 times fast, Uh, which could potentially give them matches to individuals that, like I said before, match the same genetics as the sample. That is also um, the same way that the Golden State Killer was found.
1: Right. That's I feel like that's the most well-known one that, that was used. Yes. For.
0: So based on a report from November 4th, 2019, Paraben was able to provide ancestry predictions and 30 potential extended family lineage matches. It was a miracle they had a lead. Investigators were given a list of potential matches in what can only be described. Investigators were given that list of potential matches. And in what can only be described as divine intervention, 10 days later, the detective working Kathleen's cold case was attending a training seminar. Also in attendance was another detective from the Michigan State Police. The detective from Norfolk began telling the Michigan State police detective about the help that Paraben had provided them and mentioned a list of names that he had. When he shared the list with the man, he pointed out one man, Dennis Bowman. We know him, the police officer from Michigan State said. Uh, We actually have a direct DNA sample collected from him if you want it. Oh, really? So who was Dennis Bowman and why did the Michigan State Police have a DNA sample from him to begin with? Well, in 1989, tragedy had struck the Bowman household when Dennis and his wife Brenda's 14-year-old adopted daughter had gone missing. The girl, born Alexis Badger, was renamed Andrea Bowman when she was adopted by the couple at 21 months old. Just about a year before her disappearance, the Bowmans decided to tell Andrea that she had been adopted as an infant. According to police and CPS documentation, the Bowmans said that it was after that that the girl began to act out. However, this isn't 100% the case. In 1988, Andrea had revealed to the school counselor that her adoptive father, Dennis Bowman, had been molesting her. A social worker checked in with the family. Bowman and his wife denied that this had been taking place. And just as was stated before, they wrote off her response when they said she was just upset about being adopted at a late age and this was her way of getting back at them. And she was let back in the house.
1: That's really sad.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I have to admit from like, a child psychology standpoint that you have to understand that that a child would act out if you told them at 14 years old they were adopted. Anyone at any age, I feel like, would act out because that's an internal struggle that they didn't know that they had now that they're going to have to deal with. It's a lot to emotionally unpack. However, um, there was truth to what she was saying and I can only imagine the anger and frustration that Andrea had felt in really coming forward with her abuse allegations, which is never an easy thing to do, um, especially because that's someone that you live with, that's someone that has authority over you, and someone you found out that is not really even your biological father. Um, That must have been scary for her, and she did come forward, which is really brave, but then nothing happened so you can only un-, un like you can't even understand the devastation that that must have caused that 14 year old girl
1: it's really sad and i you know it sucks because you do have a so- was it what was it, a, a social worker or is it yeah she had a child- social worker okay i mean they did go to the house so at that point it's kind of like you're doing an investigation on the parents they're both saying you know she's acting out you know and if they're all on point, or I should say, the the man in question here is on point, doesn't seem suspicious. You can kind of wa- you know miss it and just not realize that right. maybe there is something more going on here. I, I feel like it's you know because we have also cases where no one ever shows up and it's never investigated. So right. it's like what's which one's worse? Never being investigated or just them not getting the the feeling that there's more to it than what's being told to them.
0: I think they're both an absolute failure of our system within the United States when it comes to like child protective services. I, I think that unfortunately, the social workers that are in the system are overworked, um, underpaid, and there's just no way for them to keep up with the caseload that is put on them. So unfortunately, people are going to fall through the cracks. And because the caseloads are so heavy a lot of people fall through the cracks and sometimes it's easier to just say okay i've gone to this family's house everything looks like it's in tip-top shape they have a younger daughter because they did have a biological daughter after they adopted alexis or andreana had they changed her name but and the daughter the younger daughter's fine she's not reporting anything there doesn't seem to be any physical abuse um the house that they live in is being kept fine And she did have some, you know, bad reports from school of her acting out or um, so they thought, Okay, this is just a girl who's doing something because she wants attention and she just found out that she was adopted. So it's really sad that they didn't they weren't listening to what she was saying because all of the things that she was doing in school, those are cries for help. So, again, it's just so sad. So Andrea, like we said before, was sent back to live with the Bowmans and no formal investigation was ever completed. Two months later, the family relocated to an isolated mobile home community. And one month after that, two months later, the family relocated to an isolated mobile home community. And that's another like MO of abusers. It's okay, You've told this school system that you are being abused. So let's move
1: we've seen that happen in other cases as well yes i mean i can't think uh, we've done so many i can't think right now off the top of my head but i know there's one
0: yes you're talking about the kathy bonnie case where all of the children were being abused so the father was like moving from place to place yes so one month after they moved on the night of march 11th 1989 bowman showed up at his wife's job and told her that andrea was gone She had run away from home and she had taken money from the baby's dresser, referring to money that they kept in their biological daughter's dresser. Because of the unique situation, Andrea was quickly labeled an endangered runaway. Brenda Bowman had been intensely involved in the search for her adoptive daughter, while Dennis was thought to be more of a suspect than a concerned father. This was not just because of the molestation accusations, but also his criminal record. In 1980, he was arrested for attempting to lure a woman into the woods and physically assault her. However, the case of missing Andrea Bowman was cold, much like the case for Kathleen Doyle. But none of that stopped the criminal acts of Dennis Bowman. In 1998, he was arrested for breaking and entering in the home of a woman that he worked with. His goal was to rob the house he said, and he also wanted to take some of her underwear as well, but he had been caught. Because of his confession and sentencing in this case, he was swabbed for DNA, and that's why the Michigan State Police had his DNA profile. So with this new information, the Norfolk Police requested the DNA sample within days of learning that the Michigan State Police had it. When it was tested against the sample from the bedspread and the sample found on Kathleen Doyle, it was determined to be a match. A murder warrant was obtained on November 20th, 2019 for Dennis Bowman. He was arrested in Michigan two days later and was extradited to Norfolk, Virginia on February 7th, 2020. Once in Virginia, the DNA samples were tested again and again. They were found as being a match. The day after his arrival in Virginia, Bowman asked to speak with the detective working his case. After being read his rights, Bowman still stated that he wanted to confess to the murder of Kathleen Doyle. He said he had entered the home on Granby Street in September of 1980 without permission. He said that when he entered the house, he was drunk. He had wanted to rob the home and he entered it through a back window into a spare bedroom and he had used the wood laid against the house to do so as the detective originally thought once inside he walked through the house and came upon Kathleen. He said that he physically assaulted the woman in a bedroom during which the woman was stabbed. He left out the sexual assault and the binding of the helpless woman. He was asked to draw a layout of the house to prove that he had been there. And even though it had happened 40 years prior, he was able to draw a layout of Kathleen Doyle's house. Wow. So it definitely was a crime that he remembered committing. So if he remembered the layout of the house, he definitely remembered him that he raped her and how brutal and violent that crime was. But it was not something that he admitted to Further evidence given by NCIS confirmed Bowman's story. According to their records, Dennis Lee Bowman had been an E 5 in the United States Naval Reserve. He had been assigned to the USS Piedmont. During the time of the murder, he had been there for his annual two week active drill in Norfolk, Virginia. So basically, two weeks out of every year he has to go there because he's part of the Naval Reserve. So one night he got wasted and chose to do this how much of that part of the story we don't know is true um was this a planned thing we don't know was this something that he just did one time we also don't know
1: that's true but i'll tell you now i mean now that they have his dna if i mean if they ever you know, they could possibly test other cold cases and find that maybe he was involved more than just this time. So, I mean, I guess it's to be determined.
0: No, that's really true. But the confessions were not over for Dennis Bowman. He also told investigators that he was responsible for the murder of his adopted daughter, Andrea Bowman. She, in fact, had never been missing. I just want to add a like a a thing here obviously from what I told you you suspected that he was involved in this but this is just a little creepy aside the Bowman family had a portrait taken of them so it's like your normal like Sears portrait where you're like looking off in one direction like all three members it was it was himself Brenda and his uh, biological daughter but in the background they had photoshopped in a picture of andrea with like angel wings around her he did that knowing that he murdered her how sick is that
1: it really is actually and
0: that was up in their house and he had looked at that every day
1: knowing that he did that
0: that he was the one who murdered her
1: great great yes (laughs)
0: yes He admitted to investigators, and later also did to his wife, that on the night of the murder, he had gotten into a fight with a young girl. He said that he had slapped her and she had fallen down the stairs, but that it had been an accident. After he told detectives about this, he wrote a letter to his wife confessing to the crimes as well, telling her basically the same story he told the investigators. In the conversation that Brenda would eventually have with her soon-to-be ex-husband, she begged him to tell her where he had buried Andrea, something that he had not told investigators. She was absolutely disgusted with him, to say the very least, but didn't want to cut off communication because she needed to know what happened to that girl that she had promised to protect. She wanted to be able to put Andrea to to rest. And I think this also states like this goes to the fact of well, I don't think that Brenda knew what was happening. And that's why she denied to the caseworker that that wasn't taking. I don't think Brenda knew about the abuse. And then when she heard the accusation, she was in denial about it. But now it's like in your face. And this is she feels so guilty so she really works hard with investigators to try and get as much information out of Dennis Bowman as possible.
1: I mean, it's I'm sure that she feels it's the least that she could do um, for, you know, not being able to see things for what they were. Right. You know, but I mean, that's really nice that she wants to at least do that. You know what I mean? But I mean, yeah, I don't think she had any involvement or knowledge. I mean, sometimes you just know, you know. And then other times it's, it's, it's like a 50-50 kind of split, you know?
0: Right. Well, Dennis Bowman finally told her what he had done to Andrea's body. He said, so near, so far, right under your nose. She asked him what the hell he was talking about. And he replied, Andrea, I buried her in the backyard But this didn't make sense to Brenda because the house they had been living in was not the trailer that they resided in when Andrea had gone missing. He told her that he at first buried her in the yard of the trailer, but as soon as they signed papers to move to the new property that they stayed in, that he moved her body. So basically, he buried her and then a year later, he went... unburied her and then buried her on their new property but this time he put like a cement layer over her body
1: are you serious
0: yeah Mm
1: -hmm. oh my god
0: so brenda told authorities what he had revealed to her and then she followed through with her divorce papers the yard of the bowman's was searched and just as he stated the remains of a young girl were found buried in trash bags below a layer of concrete he had dismembered her and put her body in five separate bags it was determined by three pathologists that andrea had suffered from sharp force and blunt force trauma in addition to being dismembered i am sure unfortunately that andrea's death was just as brutal as kathleen doyle's was
1: yeah, I mean, I think it's safe to say that uh, she suffered, unfortunately, a very similar fate. And as far as brutality, I mean, this guy just, this guy's out of his mind.
0: Yeah. In August of 2020, Dennis Bowman was charged with one count of murder, first degree child abuse, and mutilation of a dead body in connection with Andrea's death. So now basically he's has two murder charges. Just like the case of Kathleen Doyle, he never admitted to the sexual abuse that we can now look back on and say, most likely was happening and probably had something to do with the girl's death. For the murder of Kathleen Doyle, to which Dennis Bauman confessed, he received a life sentence without the possibility of parole. The trial for the murder of Andrea Bauman began in February of 2021 which was only two months ago, so this is very, very recent. Yeah. The bravery of this young girl was revealed during the days of the trial. In his confession, Bauman said that on March 11th, 1989, Andrea had come into his room and with her bags packed, she threatened that she was going to tell everyone the truth, that he had been molesting her, and she was going to leave. We can only imagine that From that point, the fight began, and it ended with the death of Andrea. In the end, Bowman was sentenced to a second life sentence for the murder of his adopted daughter. So finally, although it took, you know, around 40 and then 30 years for these crimes to be solved, the truth came out with the new technologies that we have with DNA Um, testing and processing and the diligent work of detectives the reopening of cold cases several times but it's still such a tragedy
1: oh it is and and it's so it is really interesting to see how people don't stop doing these things right you know like he did that and 40 was it 40 years yeah 40 years passed no no he did it
0: and then 10 years passed the first crime was committed in 1980, and the second one was 89. But they hadn't been solved for 40 to 30 years. Oh well,
1: that's, that's well, that's what I meant. Yeah, I'm sorry. Let me go back. That's, okay, that's okay. I'm just trying to say that like it's so crazy that someone could commit a violent act, okay, and they could still be that way their whole life. They might never even act on it again, right. but that's still in them. Like it's, it's interesting.
0: I see what you're saying he com- he committed that murder in 1980 and that didn't scare him enough to be like oh I would never harm a human being again because then he did nine years later exactly so it was kind of like that part of him that was capable of doing that was unleashed again and in reality, we don't know if it had been unleashed other times I wouldn't be surprised if like you said with further like DNA testing um, if more hits come up yeah. So that concludes our 100th episode. Um, But before we go, we just want to thank some new patrons that we have from Patreon. Tristan Ryan, Amy Pratt, Brooklyn Benedict, Jennifer Smith, Troy Dittemore, Zara Almag-Hashla, Erin Harrison, Adriana Scruggs, Katie, Olivia Parra, and Nan Sari. Thank you so much for your donations, and we hope you are enjoying your Patreon episodes.
1: Yes, thank you guys.
0: All right, bye everyone.
1: Bye guys.